Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis. Continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. You know, it's, uh, it's getting towards festival season. I'm already getting excited. I got a couple of things I'm going to. Going to a, a secret festival in the Bay Area. I can't talk about that, but maybe one of these days we can. Um, then I'm going to go to Azora, which is an event in uh, Hungary, which I've, I have friends who've gone. Everybody loves it. They have a great time, and they have a really devoted speaker zone. Um, and, you know, that's something that I've been enjoying at festivals since the early 2000s. Uh, when the festival culture started to sprout these kind of speaker places or places where workshops would happen. And, you know, it didn't, up to that point, it really didn't happen very, very often. Uh, and it became kind of part of a, of a whole scene uh, and really enjoyed that. And uh, one of the places that, uh, uh, one of the festivals where I was enjoying that back in the day was at Boom. Uh, which I visited in uh, 2002 as a speaker. So, you know, I got to uh, get a nice trans, uh, transatlantic flight out of the deal and uh, show up at this, uh, you know, what has become one of the most uh, stalwart festival events on the planet. Um, uh, you know, every, every other year they've been, they've been doing a crack job experimenting with the form of the festival you know, winding up uh, purchasing the property where it, it takes place. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful site. Lots of different kind of music. Um, you know, d- different folks. It's interesting. There's some differences between uh, festivals in Europe and in the United States. One of which is trash in, in the United States and and in Canada, uh, which will come up in a moment. Uh, we take better care of our trash at festivals. Um, but other than that, everyone's really having a good time. So in 2002 at at Boom. Uh, I was there because I was kind of part of this nascent, then pretty underground psychedelic scene. Uh, and through that, I also knew um, a bunch of characters here in the San Francisco Bay Area who were kind of movers and shakers in uh, the emerging kind of neo-tribal scene. You know, we, we, I'm not exactly sure when we could say the neo-tribal thing really began um where it began you know that in a way that's uh you know dotting dotting the i's and uh, crossing the t's uh but in any case it was certainly something that was uh, coming to the fore uh in the bay area that i knew uh in the early 2000s and so some of these folks were hanging around boom uh in in portugal uh but there was another crew that i got to meet there uh which was a sort of similarly aligned group of folks uh, from British Columbia and particularly from the Sunshine Coast. And these guys I just totally fell in love with. They were just like the most fun, creative, weird, uh, elven, mystic, meta-programming, goofball, psychedelic, warrior, cool people that I had ever known. And, and so I just thought these guys were totally fun. And they thought I was an elder, <laughs> which is funny because I was about 30 <laughs> three or something at the time and uh and uh so i became friends with them and then i got to go up and uh the next few years spent a lot of time on the on the sunshine coast visiting doing talks going to some of their more local festivals and really just soaking up uh, their particular take on the neo-tribal scene which was really esoteric and really forward thinking and one of the elements that made it really cool is that is that it combined some old 
classic kind of hippie memes, hanging out, nature, nature spirits, uh, plant medicines, uh, healthy food, uh, crunchy lifestyle, big heart, with a really uh, forward uh, focused focus on a kind of science fictional design element. So it was like not just ideas drawn from science fiction or futurism or, or things like that, but they were kind of implemented in the way in which people talked about things, the way in which they planned events, way in which they created flyers. And indeed, one of the, uh, the, the closest friendships I made at the time was with C.J. James, who's, who's our uh, guest today here on Expanding Mind. And uh, he did uh, the, 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 the main guy did, who was doing flyers, design work, promotional materials, websites. And he brought up just a totally awesome, like kind of psychedelic science fictional vibe, but not in a 70s way. It was very much like current. It had this really great sense of a kind of organic emergence of a new way of thinking and doing. And a lot of it was super esoteric and like weird symbols and stuff drawn from Taoism. And he had a bunch of... Um, you know, co-creators who were helping it happen. It was very much a scene situation, even as there were many individuals who were shining in their own uh, in their own way. And it was really just a remarkable time at a very different sort of slice of uh, of psychedelic history. So at this uh, late date, I thought I'd just uh, you know give CJ a call and talk to him for a number of years, occasional uh, emails or, or, or since we last were hanging out a lot, and said, "Hey, let's come on the show and and talk about stuff." So. With no further ado, CJ, thanks for joining us at uh, on Expanding Mind. Uh, hey there, Eric. Um, great, awesome to uh, to be considered for something like this. <laughs> well, it's fun, you know. One of the things I like to do is just you know catch up with people. I mean, it's like it's like this is sort of like I don't do Facebook, so I don't really I don't have like a way of keeping like uh, those sort of distant contacts as well. Uh, where you just hear little bits and blobs from people. And then after a while, I'm like, you know, I could keep, you know, every week I could interview someone who comes out with a new book. It's the most easy and in some ways the most boring thing to do. Oh, I get a new book. I read the book. I talk to the author about the book. And, you know, it's great. That's a lot of what I do. I enjoy it. But it's also fun just to talk to people and, and you know, particularly people that I uh, had shared some uh, some great experiences with. And, uh, you know, and just as, as just a way to, you know, catch up. So um, this is guess... infinitely, infinitely more cool than Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> infinitely more cool. Yeah. Yeah. I never did that one. So I, I now I feel kind of good because I don't I, I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, there's for a while I would tell people I wasn't on Facebook like this was maybe. I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And people would get mad at me. Like I was arguing with them. They, I, I wouldn't say anything. I go, are you on Facebook? I go, no, I'm not on Facebook. And they would be like, whoa, what's wrong with you? What do you do? Do you have some thing? Do you think I'm part of a conspiracy? You know, they, people were so sensitive about it. But, uh, uh, when know, I, I, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. When I, when I think of Facebook, I think of it as being something that I kind of, uh, I was really interested in, uh, in social media at, at back in the time when when we were hanging out and I was a real proponent of this sort of futuristic culture that would connect through the internet and stuff like that but Facebook ended up being 
oh, so many of the things that I really didn't want to happen at all. It was like the nightmare, the nightmare realization of this thing that I campaigned heavily for. And because of my design, my design life and the fact that I kind of became more of a promoter and more of a, of a, almost an advertiser, it's become this like necessary thing. Like I, I actually feel like I can't get off it because if I get off it, my, chunk of my work disappears so oh yeah no I, I know it's a real thing for a lot of people it totally makes sense i don't have any judgment about it it's just for whatever reason i, I was just too lazy to do it and now i'm kind of i have a sort of there's a cleanness about the whole thing but you know i'm sure i've suffered i know i've suffered i've missed events and things that you know i would totally have known otherwise and you know so it's everything's a mixed bag but i i think what's interesting to pull out of that yeah. is one of the things that made you know and i want to talk more about specifically how you brought your technology skills your design skills your sense of your sense of what digital technology meant and could have could provide at this period of time you know just around the 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 turn of the millennium you know, it's like the first dot-com boom is kind of, it went, it, you know, kind of declined a little bit, but there was still the sense that like something big, I mean, thing, big things were already happening, but something more was happening. And there was still that sense of a, a I don't want to say utopian, because that's sort of a weird word, but like where it, it felt like that the, the technology was able to help design and support the flourishing of a of an alternative scene in a really interesting way, um, so I I just I would just curious to hear how you brought your skills to bear. Did you meet people first? Was it a kind of organic process? And then how you brought particularly those design technology online skills into the work of of supporting and and, and helping a scene flourish. Oh yeah, well for sure. I mean. Uh... So you remember that when you talk about the, the dot-com boom sort of going downhill at that time, but in Canada, we were just like a little bit behind everything. So we sort of picked up the this, this technological thing, this rave culture in particular. We picked it up later than what was going on in, in San Francisco and stuff. So, I mean, when it came around sort of Y2K time, and I mean, I had just sort of, I graduated from university and I was, I was really into the whole, the whole thing as it was, as, as computers were blowing up and in, in, in the university context. And I, I just, I was so enamored with it that I went into the computer lab. I didn't take computer studies. I was an English literature major. I, had, I ended up, you know, with a degree in English literature. So I was kind of coming at it from the, the literature, the writing side of things. And uh, I just I went into the computer lab there and I taught myself to use programs because I was really inspired to be part of this rave culture, which was unspeakably technological for me. And I, I really wasn't. I was more of a nature hippie. But the technological side of it just grabbed me all of it. I mean, everything from the, the techniques, 1200 turntables and this whole like form of music that wasn't, it was just speakers and, and electronics and wires, but somehow it had this connection to it that was, was really enticing to me. Rave culture just like grabbed people and it brought them all together. And I really wanted to find a way to be part of it. And I wasn't a DJ at the time. And I thought, uh, well, you know, it needs, 
I, I saw ray flyers were a thing, right? Like, I, I mean, I know they were down in the Bay Area too, but ray flyers were this really interesting dialogue. And that's how you found out about the events and it was really underground. And I thought they were just so cool. And I, I, I figured out that the way that you learned to do that, you know, the way that you did that was through Photoshop. I'd heard that someone say, oh, yeah, you need to learn Photoshop. So I went to the, I went to the Simon Fraser computer lab, which was pretty advanced at the time. And I taught myself to use all these programs. Just to just to make rave flyers essentially, and then I, I made a zine. I started making zines for the for the for the scene, and it just kind of went from there. I I met all of these people who became really important in in the, in that time. And two that I should mention right away is my friend Nasco, who was the one who brought ended up bringing us all to Boom, and my friend Delvin, who is just a a mystic poet gardener technological guy we were all really um at the time we were all really connected by these ideas of what you might call you know like ancient futurism or something like that this timeless shamanic experience mixed in with a real futuristic feel and i just kind of all it all sort of spread from there really and we uh we we decided that rave culture was this perfect perfect um way to gather people in a sort of um intentional community space and we were really approaching it as as university scholars more than partiers for sure we th- we were really inspired by say uh, uh hakeem bay's temporary autonomous zone writings and um and definitely terence mckenna's archaic revival was probably the most influential piece of work on us at the time so we felt we were part of this emerging technological culture that was really rooted in a more ancient shamanic tradition. Yeah, and uh, it just to, just to cut yeah. in with or just Sorry, a, yeah. some of Go my on. own yeah. some of my own reflections was just that you know when you say all that in a way at this point of the game you're like oh, okay yeah sure you know ancient future blah 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 you know drugs blah blah blah. And and what's important to, to emphasize is just how proactive and intentional you guys were. I mean, the intentionality behind what's the language around a party? When do you have it? What calendar system are we working on? I mean, for example, I, I would I love the fact that at some point in the game, many people in your community just started to use the Jose Arguello's uh, dream spell calendar as the calendar. So you would just like when you're making agreements about when to do things, you would just be using this alternative system. And it just, it, 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 it underscored for me the way that people in that, in your scene were able to kind of use like design elements, systems thinking, um, different templates as a way of exploring collectively what it meant to be pushing on this strange, you know, archaic future where there was a, a return to, to na- nature vibes and very grounded kind of hippie essence. And at the same time, you know, moving on a, on a light, you know, light ship forward, you know, into the future. <laughs> yeah, we definitely, we, we definitely mixed the two. That was like a, that was such a huge uh, component to it. Again, like the, the, sort of plumbing the depths of of 
more like archaic or ancient cultures. At the time, the, the Mayan culture was was really looming large in the neo-tribal community. As you mentioned, Jose Arguez's dream spell was sort of based on based on the Mayan calendar, but was sort of his own artistic interpretation of it. And we were really inspired by that and found that when we adopted this this system to a calendar and the way that it worked was that you you would the, the calendar was not just dates anymore. It had concepts behind each day. And, and, and tones and frequencies and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and it might seem a little woo nowadays. And I mean, Arguez is not as widely accepted. But when our community adopted that kind of, that kind of um, symbolic language and, and that relationship to time and everything, it had really extraordinary effects on, our, on, on the people. And what happened with us, like a, a certain type of synchronicity came into our lives that is undeniable. It's, it's totally undeniable, and I wouldn't say that it proved that the calendar system was correct or whatever. I, I just thought of it as being a group of people who intentionally put themselves on a on a frequency, on a timing frequency that is connected to concepts, ended up experiencing a great deal of synchronicity around those concepts. So we we just we decided that you know instead of being connected to the Gregorian calendar, which, you know, we sort of vilified as being the, 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 the cause of all society's woes. And we put ourselves on the Mayan calendar and suddenly, you know, the, the connections that we were having were so much greater. It made it so that it was, it was harder to figure out what days parties were going to be on because it would be, you know, red lunar moon or, or, you know, a red cosmic skywalker or whatever, but it had these, this significance that everybody embraced and it, it brought a real sort of magic to that time. And I kind of missed that a little bit, but it was, and, and it, it led to us all, obviously me in particular, because I was just a, such an internet freak that I just went looking for all the types of possibilities that I could for symbolic languages and started just drawing connections through all of these things whether it was which was future oriented stuff or it was really past oriented stuff i just i ripped it from the internet and i put it on flyers and i just made the things look really dense like that was my style was was density of information <laughs> on a flyer so much so that i think people started to think that you know we were just way too out there yeah, well, that was part of the fun of it. I mean, as I said, like it was like getting like these sort of esoteric, alchemical, uh, blue, you know, but but blueprints of some future that hadn't quite come together yet. And it it really, uh, for me, it 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 was like the the, the highest and in, in most intense form of that much broader kind of neo tribal vibe, which itself I don't even really know where to to talk about its origins like was when you guys were coming up when you were first sort of you know hanging out with with nasco and delvin and you were like running on these riffs and elves and Taoism and you know all this kind of dream spell did you have a sense that there was already a lot of people or places that were already kind of doing this kind of thing or did it did it kind of emerge from what your interests were at that time it for us it, it all that culture always felt like we were what uh, Delvin would describe as a cusp culture. 
and we were always talking about it in those terms. Like it is emerging. It is, it's new. It's something that hasn't been around before in the shape that it is, even though it's rooted in ancient futurism, you know? So we, we really felt like we were this kind of, uh, vanguard, like it's an ev- rightly or wrongly in a grandiose sort of way, like an evolutionary vanguard at the time. And, and keep in mind too, that at the time it was, there was a real sort of apocalyptic feeling to what was going on around things like Y2K, but also like the imminent 2012 stuff that we were all caught in. And we, because it was a little bit before real social media proliferation of, of these ideas, which totally shows you that like you're not by in any way unique. Um, we ended up, you know, we ended up just organically connecting with other communities that were sort of doing similar things. And obviously that's how we ended up, we ended up meeting you, you know, like, I mean, I would say that your book technosis was one of, you know, the, the important pieces in our library, you know, uh, just cluing us in that there were, there were actually scholars who were looking at things like this. And then there was the Oracle, um, the Oracle gathering community in Seattle, which was really on an even more esoteric level than us doing events close by. And obviously like through rave culture, we ended up connecting with each other, you know, and then there was the gathering of the tribes community down in LA. And those people were also in this, in the same, in this, you know, in the same vein. And we, And then there were some people in the Bay Area, people like Eve Lady Apples in particular and Lindsay Lynx and uh, visionary artists like Carrie Thompson and uh, and Luke Brown and Zavi like those. We all met organically through events, but we formed a really tight bond with each other because we did feel like this neo-tribal thing, it, it, was, it was new and really exciting. And also we felt at the time, rightly or wrongly, that it was a real answer to some of the, some of the ills that we saw around us in mainstream culture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those were all, I think that's, that was really well said. And it's also interesting that all those scenes you talk about was all all on the West Coast. And I say that not just because, you know, obviously you got, you know, it's where you were living. So it's, you're going to be closer to a rave scene in, in Seattle or, or, or even LA than with people in the, in the, in the East Coast or whatever. But it's yeah. also, you know, it also represents a certain kind of West Coast vibe, uh, <laughs> a certain, certain kind of resonance between, you know, super uh, hippie woo elements, but also, a technology and also a kind of edge, a sense of edginess that's also kind of a, a feeling of return, like you're returning to some more ancient order or something. And those are all like really important memes that you can track throughout, you know, the West Coast. And, you know, when I've done my work on on tra- on, on tracking festival culture, it's like it's very clear to me that there's something specific about what the West Coast, you know, puts into that mix and in this case it's it's most visible outcome was as you said the careers of some visionary artists and beyond even the careers of those artists really a whole language i mean now if you go to festivals and you look at the art you're like okay a lot of this stuff is pretty cliched 
And it's cliched because they're still using the languages that were invented by a much smaller group of people 20 years ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago. And Uh, Alex Gray, I I would say, like, you know, if you wanted to point to one real East Coast sort of sort of connection, Alex Gray's influence on the on in quotation marks, visionary art scene is still so prevalent and, and his, and he, and he's still, you know, re- invited around to be, to be part of these events now, even though they're more global, but, you know, Alex Gray's sort of ideas of, around art and he's very prolific in his, in his writing about it too, were very influential on our, on our culture. And Absolutely. Even the West coast, you know, the side of it too. And when you say West coast, because we really identified with being West coast too, you know, that was like a big part of it too, was feeling different than the East coast in some ways. Part of it was down tempo too. And that, and if you look at the rave culture and the types of music that was part of it too, we are, our communities really espoused this down tempo vibe. And it's still it's still kind of there. It's still in it. it we're, we're, we're the people who sort of pioneered the chill room in quotation marks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was there, there was just sort of a, a, a kind of a, a, there was room made for the contemplative uh, aspect of it. Um, and then, of yeah. course, also the, uh, the the fashion side is that some of the people who were you know, who were, uh, you know, living in these worlds, moving in these worlds were really, really creative dressers. I mean, it's part of the whole, you know, festival Burning Man scene is just like being creative with your dress. Although, of course, there's also lots of imitation and, and you know, uh, plug and play kind of approaches. But uh, but there was something very unique about very unique. There's something unique and, and quite uh, colorful about this. And in some sense, it's it's, it's arguable that that's in a way like the most visible sign of a lot of this whole scene is what people call the feather and leather thing, a certain yeah. kind of like <laughs> Elvin's uh, grid grunt, leather bound grungy. I, it's so hard to put your finger on it. Exactly. Uh, but it became, I think um, one of the more visible elements, you know, probably ultimately it's unfortunate that that couldn't, that the, the kind of more co- uh, cognitive and spiritual memes weren't maybe quite as, didn't quite as translate as well. Uh, but that's sort of how things go. But it was, but in a way it made me think about like fashion's really interesting because if it's just fashion and, you know, other people disagree with me, but if, if it's just fashion for me, it's only so interesting. But when, the fashion is also another way to kind of design an environment. Then it's something very different where, where the fashion is part of along with the music or along with the, the name of the, the gathering, along with the rit- ritual behaviors, along with the language, all of those elements, they're all part of something where you're composing a kind of possible culture, like a, like a culture that could, you could actually imagine however fantastically, that would be able to live in a technological world while still keeping some kind of deep spiritual connection with nature and with very old ways of, of being, being in the cosmos and the, the, the cycles of time and the cycles of the seasons, and yet being open for the science fiction possibilities of the future and like what would that kind of culture really be, what would it look like, what would it, what would it feel like to be inside of that? And in a way, there's a kind of uh, 
it's not like a utopia. It's more like a, it's almost like a, like a simulation game. Like you can get all these elements going, including the design elements, including the kinds of things that you were doing and Delvin were doing around language. And it kind of creates a, a sort of a stage or a, or a run through a Petri dish of some kind of possibility. So it makes sense that there was a sort of millennial feeling about it, that maybe you were really doing something very significant, uh, you know, even though it's harder to track in the, in, you know, from, from hindsight, uh, you know, really where did it go or what, what actually happened with it? Um, I can, I, I can see certain things that happened to it. And I, it's funny that you, you really focus in on the fashion because I mean, you know, one of the things that we always struggled with as a community was that we were broke. We're poor people in a way, you know, and and it was a real sort of dropout community. We didn't really want to be, uh, I mean, we, we weren't adulting in quotation marks, you know, we were, re we were really stepped out of the financial systems. And there was always a, a, a question of like, how, how can we sort of make some kind of money to make this stuff happen? You know, and it, and the fashion side of it became the strongest, um, you know, export of our neo-tribal community. And unfortunately, as soon as there's some sort, well, actually, it's maybe not the strongest export because eventually when electronic music really hit the mainstream, then the whole DJ thing exploded out of it. And that's ended up becoming the biggest business of it all. But for a long time, one of the one of the ways of sustaining ourselves, sustaining this like neo-tribal thing was the tribal market. And the tribal market was filled with this type of clothing. And every and you know it, it simultaneously it 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 gave people an identity within, and it, it was like paradoxical because it felt like you know you'd express your uniqueness through this through this dress through this way of uh, of 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 you know clothing yourself, but it also sort of became this almost cultish exclusive cliquey kind of thing that people backlashed against a, a little bit because eventually it became commodified and it became the focus of the monetary side of of the of the festival culture and so you ended up seeing characters going off to bali and taking their really sort of futuristic but also sort of more ancient elvish designs and getting like the Balinese craftspeople to craft all of this gear and bring it back and it would be sold like at quite a like you know up quite upsold a serious uh you know markup on it at festivals and so you would see like a whole sort of class of people within the neo tribal community that became like the the richer part of it. I mean, there were there were obviously people, you know, who who delved a little bit in in um, distributing the various different molecules that uh, affected everyone's consciousness. And you know, there were those ballers, and then there were the people who made the clothing. And as, as the result of these things, as a result of these parts of the culture proliferating. I found myself that some of the other parts that we felt were the most important people like Delvin and myself and, and, and NASCO in our seeking to create a, an intelligence culture around it, you know, like a, we, we would create these places where people would come to learn and do workshops and things like that. And that part of the festival culture did 
particularly in North America, mostly in North America, got shuffled away. And it became much more about the fashion and the tribal markets and the scene and everything like that. And, and, and that's sort of where, where we've left off in some ways. Although you mentioned, uh, you know, the boom festival and Azora and stuff like that. And those, you know, globally, the festival community still embraces that workshop, the, the learning part of it, the really, the, the, you know, let's, let's, let's try and make this culture sustainable in some way, rather than simply being uh, another offset of entertainment culture and then, you know, consumerism and stuff. I, I really focus in on, I, if I was to get bitter about anything, I would be bitter a little bit about how much the fashion ended up taking over and becoming the thing that everyone deeply identified with, although that's what happened. It, yeah. it was not my favorite part. Yeah, no, it's a it's a funny pro issue because uh, you know it also has something to do with with magic, like in the in the sense that that on as I said, like as part of a larger holistic scene or or are happening, putting on clothes that have uh, their own flavors, their own allusions. They they resemble things in the future. They resemble things in the past. There's this element of the archaic, but it's creative. You know, in a way, it's an extension of some of the, you know, the visual decisions you would make on your flyers. But there's a weird way in which, like, the magic, the glamour, you know, literally, like, the word glamour comes from, like, fairy lore, you know, the... the uh, the, the fairy right. the, the fairy folk will put a glamour on you meaning that you're in ensorcelled you're 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 in a spell and that there is this power and when you wear those kind of clothes and you're young and you're pretty and everything's happening and whatever it's so it's so juicy it's so powerful that it becomes kind of intoxicating and I think in some ways distorting if it becomes d disconnected from these other in a way subtler or more uh, you know, um, not quite as obvious, uh, reasons to be, you know, drawing together, but, but, but be, rather than going ragging on the yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. ragging on no, fashion, I want to go back to what do you think was the most important stuff that you and Delvin and Nasco were thinking about, were memeing about what was, what was that element of intentionality that, that seems to you even now as being, you know, really valid or something that you, you know, w w would have liked to see more of uh, that that still has a resonance for you? Well, definitely, you know, Delvin was a real inspiration in that regard and that he he was pr perhaps, I would say, the most intentional of our of our crew in it. It was really important to him that everything that we did have some sort of he always talked about the implications and the applications of this culture. And he kind of inspired us to keep being part of it. He sort of dropped away when it became more glam and everything because he felt less involved in it. But he, he was um, his his real love was permaculture and gardening. And I think that that's still one of the most important things that we connected through. And it's like an unlikely thing to have really connected to rave culture. Surprisingly, these all these techno hippies dancing around in the forest were also into into you know sort of older but kind of um, revolutionary ways of of um, of gardening of agriculture of sustaining ourselves, and that was really kind of where we came 
into things. Uh, um, I mean, I was I was much more of a technological person. So for me, for for me, the 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 important uh, part of the of the things that we were on was about how we use technology and being conscious about how we inter interface with technology and sort of creating spaces within the emerging uh, digital world for ourselves that are not controlled by the powers that be. And I wish that there was more of that. I would, I called it digital ethics at the time and, and in our workshops and stuff, I focused a lot in, in sort of talking to the, to the, the techno hippies about being conscious of the world that they were creating in the, in the digital space. Not that it seems to have um, done that much good in it, but that, that that was one of the things that I felt was was the most important of where I was at. And that coupled with the, the notion of um, being more sustainable and perma permaculture is more than just gardening. It's sort of a way of, it's a, sort of a holistic approach of looking at your life. You need to look at your life as a garden and figuring out which things give you nutrients and which things take away from your nutrients and how, you know, how to, how to um, you know live more in connection with with nature and also you know move forward. So I would say sort of like permaculture and digital ethics were probably the most important parts of it. And Delvin and I really we crystallized it into a, into a thing that we called the crystalline spore, which was our little. Uh, workshop paradigm kind of thing that we were exploring at that time and and we would riff together on the on the nature and the technological side of things and how they weren't really that different you know that nature was a form of technology and and, and technology has a natural flow to it you know I, I think those are probably the, the in esoterically and you know ideologically are the things that I've held on to in it as I've moved through rave culture. And I mean, but I'm, I'm, I'm still really heavily involved in rave culture, but I'm more like the graphic designer promoting the events and everything now, you know what I mean? So I, I still enfold all that stuff. You know, my, my flyers and I still sort of pride myself on being able to embed all this kind of imagery and everything into it. And Delvin's a huge permaculturalist you know he travels around the world to share this information with other people though the rave culture is sadly not as embracing of like i say as we said the, the more intelligent side of things so we we're less invited to speak to those things in north america you know and you know it's a lot harder for us to get those those transatlantic flights to go over there to places in europe where they really do still embrace this kind of thing you know, yeah, still yeah, a big, a, still a big part. So, and and then since you're talking about kind of the stuff you've been working on now, I know you you moved from the at some point from the the Sunshine Coast uh, to Nelson, a place I've never visited, but I've heard a lot about it from you and from from Nascau and and from others, uh, which which has its own kind of uh, uh, hippie countercultural uh, past and um and is also a, a site for a lot of uh, of winter sports, so it has that weird like ski town kind of thing going on. Oh yeah, give give me a little slice of uh, <laughs> of, of life in Nelson, man. What's how, how's this? I chase. Is, cap is capitalism destroying it like everything else? It is. It is. I have to. I have to be honest about that. It is. See, I I left the Sunshine Coast because um, I needed a change, and there was a real sort of 
you know, there, there's a big festival up here called the Shambhala Music Festival, and it's a it's a, a famous one in the world right now. It's kind of more bass music festival. And, um, you know, I kind of followed my skill set out here in some ways because, you know, there was a festival culture. But there's all there's a town of 10,000 people, but it has like four nightclubs and and, you know, five ski shops and everything. And it's I followed the snow because that was like an old school part of my life that I had let go because living on the coast, you can't really ski. And I'm a snowboarder, deep snowboarder from from way back in like 1986 or something like that. And I'd let it go during my hippie phase of things because you know i i felt that it was too connected to consumer culture and everything like that and and so i just didn't do it very much but i came out here and this is the epicenter of the best snow on the planet you can see it because like it's in all the snowboard films there's always people you know skiing at our local ski area or going up into the mountains and helicopters and cats and everything like that like this is this is the best snow there is here and for a long time, it was a real. It was kind of a secret, and there were like these backcountry purists who lived up here, and there were like hippie hippie culture that was kind of built built on on pot growing kind of um, kind of scenes. So people had some money, and they were able to buy their gear and everything like that, and take the whole winter off and just you know be up in the be up in the mountains. And it snows a lot, you know, on the average, and it, it snows upwards of. 15 centimeters. I don't know what exactly that is in inches, but I mean, 15 centimeters to 25 centimeters is not uncommon nightly. So we get the powder snow. We get the the mystical feeling of, that people go for here. And so as the result of it, you know, this town has become, uh, it, it, it's been put on the radar. This, this snow sports are sort of exploding right now. And now, nowadays, I mean, this, this little town of 10,000 people has a similar real estate market to a place like Vancouver in terms of what houses are worth and the type of people that are coming out. So this, there was this weird counterculture that was here for a while, very hippie-ish, very you know, connected to psychedelics and pot and even the rave culture to a certain extent. They can't really afford to be here anymore because the housing market is is filled with you know expensive houses and airbnbs because people want to come up here and ski they want this very you know uh affluent kind of lifestyle this leisure culture lifestyle it's kind of a paradox for me because i still am very much you know uh a anti-corporate hippie if you will you know what i mean but i love my gear i love my snowboard and i i I try i make it out to snowboard every morning if i can from nine o'clock in the morning until noon that's my i call it the businessman shred like i get out there and i do the i do the three hour this the hill is about 20 minutes from my place i I clock it at 21 minutes if there's not a stupid car in front of me that can't make it up the road so i can make it i can make it up there in 20 minutes i catch the first chair i get the best snow in the world completely untracked very mystical spiritual experience and then i'm back in my office at noon 12 30 or whatever and i complete my work day and it's sort of rinse and repeat that's a that's my life in the winter. I live for it. I love it. I'm a diehard snowboarder now. I went. I went from not having 
done it for a few years to not really being able to imagine what my life would be like without it. Well, yeah, it's, and I, I'm curious about that, like especially as someone who you know you had you had a lot of uh, you know wild ex- uh, experiences when you were younger at <laughs> raves, you know, dancing, collective energy, psychedelics, you know, both in ritual forms and party forms and metamagical uh, elven science fictional <laughs> forms, and you know, you you've had a lot of rich experiences. I'm as and then now you're you know you're older you're also like sounds even more deeply sort of not identified but just de- you're deeply engaged with with snowboarding which as you know you're not the only one who ascribes <laughs> some of these spiritual you know features to it it's not just a sport it's not just an exercise it's not even just a way to get out you know in beautiful nature there's something about the flow there's something about the connection with the speed and flow and, and matter that really brings it together for people like this, you know, not dissimilar from surfing in that way, obviously, but uh, what, what is that? Like when, when, how does that, and how has that evolved for you? Like over the years, like, it's not like, Oh, I've been there, done that. And I got to go on to another thrill. There's something that keeps compelling you. That's not just repetition because that would get boring. There's something that's unfolding and evolving for you. And I just, just, just from that, almost from that more spiritual side, uh, I'm just interested in hearing you about your evolved relationship with snowboarding. Oh, absolutely. I, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. So I was always really obsessed with water. It was like it was something that I really identified with. It turned came as part of my Mayan sign to the lunar moon, the universal water kind of thing. And I, I really identified with water and flow. And I, I I considered water to be like the essence of flow. And in its liquid state, I mean it just it just goes where it goes. You know what I mean? It just it flows. It is pure flow. And the, I remember the first winter that I came to Nelson after you know having been psychedelic for many years and i was just watching the snowfall and it occurred to me and it's not i mean it, it may sound like trite or whatever but it, i was i was looking at frozen flow i could see it just like gently falling down in the in in the in the in the sky and there the, the flakes are this crystalline just every one of them so like unique and and yet and it, you can see flow frozen in time. This, and then it's really complex, actually, that it's not, you know, it just gets you wet if it's rain. And I was just so sick of being in the rain culture. I mean, sure, you can identify with that. The San Francisco style, uh, style winters can be, you know, rainy. And that Sunshine Coast was far from sunshine in the winter. So, you know, the snow really kind of inspired me. It just made flow so much more clear to me. And then the idea that when the board is on top of the snow, it's creating this friction that actually becomes the water becomes flow again and you're sliding and you're moving, you're moving down and everything is kind of like a play with gravity. It's a controlled falling, you know, but the whole idea is to do it with style. And for some reason that, that, it just it it never gets old because every run is totally different. Even if you go down the same run, it's 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 always 
moving and changing the snow conditions is no no cliche that the the inuit and the north have all these names for snow and that's not it's not uh surprising to me i have hundreds of names for snow myself you know because the conditions are always so different and then on top of that there's this feeling that you get when you're on top of a mountain and in some ways, skiing is sort of cheating it a little bit. And the, and the purists, the real backcountry purists who hike up, they'll tell you that, you know, earning your turns is the top, is the pinnacle of this type of experience. But when you're on top of a mountain, the inspiration that you get from being able to look out and have that much in your vision, it just like, it, it, it's so it's awe inspiring. It's it fills your heart, it fills your soul completely to just be able to see that much. And then, you know, the trees, the trees that are just so I mean, it's the sort of Nelson is in a peculiar sort of place. It's it's sort of inland in BC, but it has a rainforest climate. So the trees are big, they're big trees here and everything. So you're you're in the middle of these big tree forests. It's silent as anything. It's about it, it, it. The silence of a of a winter forest is deep silence. You don't hear anything else but the swish of your board as you're going down, and the feeling of floating on top is unmatchable. I you compare it only to only to sex, really, in terms of like how it feels, and it, it's also a it's a it's a dealing with yourself. It's a, because it's you in the mountain, you know, even if you're snowboarding with other people, you kind of lose that. You're not thinking about, you know, necessarily what it looks like or what other people think about it. Everything, everything drops away. That's why it makes my, it makes my work so much easier when I go back to work because I, I've, I've utterly cleared my mind out. You can't really focus on anything else except getting down. And on a, on a day when it snowed and there's, there's, a, there's a foot of fresh snow in front of you, there is just no feeling like that. It is, it is as psychedelic as anything because it's so beautiful and it's so pure. And you get to experience it. I, there's, there's, a, there's a book uh, 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 that I, I read a, a ways back. It's, um, it's one of those sort of pseudo-Buddhist books. It's called um, Surfing the Himalayas. I don't know if you heard about it, but um, it, it, no. it, 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 yeah, it's, a, it's, it's one of those, you know, popular fiction books that tries to explain Buddhism in, you know, the vernacular, try, tries to explain Buddhism in, 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 in a way that, you know, anyone could get it. And, it. and it talks about Buddhism in snowboard terms. The rough plot is that a guy goes decides he's going to go surfing or he's going to go snowboarding in the Himalayas. He's going to, you know, climb up one of the Him the Himalayan mountains and snowboard down. It's his idea. And as he snowboarding down, he just clocks a monk. He just hits a Tibetan monk. And it starts a series of dialogues between them in which the monk uses his snowboarding as a way to illustrate the principles of, of Buddhism. And it really influenced me, actually. I mean, I, I was already well familiar with Buddhism, but I just, I, I just loved the way it connected with snowboarding. One of the things that stuck with me is this, is is the is a phrase "be the board," and that is kind of it's like my mantra every time I step in on 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 on, on the snowboard. Is that you become part of this thing, 
that's just moving. Down. It's just moving. You're in. You're in complete connection with flow. So I, maybe I'm, I'm I'm repeating myself, but really the 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 real lesson in snowboarding for me and the way it connects to my psychedelic past and whatever my future is, is just being in pure flow and becoming more proficient at working with that flow. So, so here's a question for you. You know, it seems it, it's always interesting and, you know, to some degree disheartening and to some degree exciting when more and more people turn on to a sport or particularly a, 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 a sport that has this kind of in, inner side to it. And those, but it's, it's, it's almost like the same question of uh, when you look back at the fashion question with the, the Sunshine Coast, there are aspects of practices that are easy to reproduce and to get obsessed with and to get, you know, get your yayas through. And then there are subtler aspects that are not, that don't necessarily come along for the ride so easily. And that happens with these sports too, in the sense that once you get, the, once you, it gets thoroughly professionalized, all the gear manufacturers, all the, 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 the heroes, the professionals, the, the Olympics, da, da, da. <laughs> Do, do you feel that people who are coming into it now or the people you 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 see or the the what's happening in the in the snowboard shops and just your sense of the culture is that inner side still available to people or is it almost like getting lost in the visibility and the the consumerism and the uh you know the olympics and blanco and all all that kind of stuff or do you feel like there's some there's there's a kind of inherent purity to the practice that is going to be communicating that to, at least to people who who are re ready for that or want to hear that? Well, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you mention it because I'm a, I'm a real snowboard um, media fanatic too. Like I I, I really kind of crossed right over to it, and I, I I like watching it as well. I'm I'm really just inspired by the fluid aesthetics of it and everything like that. And I'm also a sucker for the capitalist side of it. I mean, I love my snowboard gear. I love the the top sheets. I love how the gear kind of evolves as the years evolve. So there's that there's that element of it, you know. And I mean, I feel it's it's harder and harder to escape in the world. But, my sort of anti-capitalist self has um, has taken a pause, if you will, in in certain levels of it, and I become inspired by those people who have made interesting businesses out of this type of culture. You know that I mean everybody's. It, you know, I, I guess I kind of dropped the old idea that you know, being part of the counterculture meant that you dropped out completely, that this whole system was crumbling. You know, I felt that originally, but now it's not, you know, now it's kind of like clearly not crumbling. And one of the best things you can do is take part in it. So there's all sorts of like these younger people that are, and, and older people for that matter, in the, in the snowboard world and in the ski world who are using this platform to do interesting things. You know, and to and to and to develop this take on it, to to you know approach the spiritual side of things, to approach the 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 purest side of it. And I mean, you know, the, 
I can't I can't name them in particular, but of course there's all these movies that come out. And one of the one of the big um, snowboard stars, Travis Rice, he's 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 done a lot for the sport in some ways. And one of his last films really addressed the concept of of uh, climate change and what that means to snowboarders. And you know, and and exploring sort of the, the the change in 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 the world's water supply and and you know how that changes snow and everything. So I, what I see is some of these. It, it's not all just consumerism now. It's people connecting in with this lifestyle, and I love that. I love that notion that you know the life the the lifestyle is. The, the lifestyle is now so widespread that, it, uh, that it's allowing these interesting folk to have a voice through it. You know, yeah. There's that you can build a business that's successful and the basis of that business can actually have a really cool message. You know, environmentalists really, you, you find a lot of environmentalist backcountry skiers here. You know, we have a lot. We we have um, some pristine land here that is always under threat from being from from being logged because that's what BC does. It just tears its forests down, one way or the other. And so, you know, the environmentalists kind of use their ski platform as a way to continue to bring the vision of the pure supernatural beauty of this place to the world. You know, and I mean, I that may be a small part of a small part of it, but. You know, the, the beauty of the world is something that inspires. Yeah, that's good. That's well said. Um, the, I, I, it almost sounds also like we just got like, actually, we sort of, we should wrap it up. I was going to oh, introduce another idea, but I, you know, it goes fast. See, it goes fast. It goes I didn't fast. Feel like we even got to half the stuff. But uh, thank you so much for, sh- for sharing a slice of your life and catching me up on what you've been up to and going going over some of the old uh, the old tales. So thanks a lot, CJ. Oh, Eric, I'm I'm just so honored that you uh, that you gave a call and, uh, and um, allowed me to talk about some of this stuff because you know it's I, I still feel like a lot of it's relevant and you're one of my favorite people for sure. So definitely appreciate it. Sweet. Well, I have to visit you one of these days because it's yeah. Now, now I want to really. I don't snowboard, but I, I can fake it. <laughs> Yo, you can you can fake it. Believe me, anyone oh, can do it. All right, man. All right. Uh, until next week, folks. Keep your minds open. <laughs>